Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. Um, and if you, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, th- um, just to tell you a little bit about our Patreon, um, we have a weekly bonus episode when you sign up for as little as a dollar a month and you get a, a weekly episode of all my rundowns of everything I'm watching that week. Um, and I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons and they are Chris Valga, Jeff Whitman, Philip Barker, and Michael Cross. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. And if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. Well, I've got a returning voice on the podcast. I've got Danny Hercules. Say hi, Danny. Hi, Danny. Hey, and you've been on on the show a few times, usually covering musicals. Well, actually, uh, I think the the last two were not musicals; they were original movies that had been later adapted into Broadway musicals. But this is the first. Oh, time. you're right. I think right. that's why I'm thinking of them as musicals, yes. like uh, <laughs> the Waitress well, one that we covered. Yeah, Waitress and Elf, and also I did Xanadu, which was an original movie that had music, had songs in it that was later also turned into a full-fledged Broadway musical. Okay, well, I'm completely wrong, but at least, <laughs> at least, El- well, did Waitress have any music in the movie? I can't remember now. Well, it had score, and it had the one song that she sings. Uh, that's right. Okay, I think that's what yet. I must be thinking of then. <laughs> which was not in the play. Okay. Well, it tells you how much I know about musicals, huh? <laughs> That's okay. So this is the first time I'll be talking about an actual Broadway musical that was adapted into a movie. Okay. Well, at so, least the other movies had that musical connection, which yes. must, must have been what I was thinking of. Well, um, I guess we better not tease it too much more. Let me just say real quick, Danny, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit before we jump into the movie. Uh, I've got really not much that to say, to say about myself. Um, I have written screenplays. I've written a novel. Uh, I have a series of eBooks, Kindle books about screenwriting called script tips. And, um, when I was in high school, I was in musical theater and, uh, I also had joined, uh, in the 2010s, I joined a workshop in Los Angeles called the Academy for new musical theater, where I learned more about writing musicals and uh, I had a few produced uh, one at the Hollywood Fringe Festival and uh, so I kind of reawakened my interest in musicals that's I guess that's why I've keep picking musicals or musical related (laughs) things to talk about nice well you know I encourage listeners to go listen to our other episodes like Elf Waitress and the first one was Xanadu that's right okay so uh, go ahead and listen to those Um, and my guest always picks the movie. So what movie did you choose to talk about today? Well, because it's the 4th of July, we are going to talk about 1776, otherwise known as the prequel to Hamilton. Yeah, I was thinking about Hamilton while I was watching this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, let's also give a quick summary of the movie. So if you haven't seen it before, I mean, I guess you kind of know what's going to happen because you know history. Hopefully you know history well enough to know what's going to happen in this movie. (laughs) But if not, here is a brief uh, synopsis of it. Um, The nation's fathers harmonized their way through the founding of America in this musical adapted from a popular Broadway show. Colonial representatives gather in Philadelphia with the aim of establishing a set of governmental rules for the burgeoning United States. Benjamin Franklin and John Adams charged Thomas Jefferson with the work of writing a statement announcing the new country's emancipation from British rule. 
So yeah. Very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about your history with this movie? When, when did you first see it? Well, I have a vague recollection of actually seeing it when it first came out. I was very young. Uh, but it was G-rated, and it was educational, so it's absolutely the kind of movie that my parents would take me and my brother and sister to see. Um, and like I said, I, I vaguely remembered some of the songs from it, and the I also remember the New York Abstains running gag. I, I, I totally remember <laughs> seeing that when I was a kid. Uh, but my next memory of it was a little bit stronger because uh, we, we watched the movie in school in uh, junior high in seventh grade as part of our history that class. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, they didn't have VHS yet at those times, so we probably watched it on 16 millimeter. It's a long movie, so they canceled classes for the afternoon and had all the the whole grade go down to the auditorium to watch it in one one fell swoop. And I remember the teacher, you know, giving a little speech ahead of time. It was corresponding with what we were studying at the time, but he was pointing out things to look for that would be on the test, like the triangle trade and, and things like that. Well, this was my first time seeing it. <laughs> oh my god! I was I was yeah. kind of curious about that. Okay, and then my next memory of it, of course, is uh, when I was a senior in high school. We actually did the play, and I was in it. Oh, so, which part did you play? I played. I was actually cast as Robert Livingston uh, from New York. He's uh, one of the, the guys on the committee to draft the Declaration. Uh, so he's in the song, but Mr. Adams, he's going home to a popcorn. Oh. But then the guy <laughs> playing North Carolina, who always yields to South Carolina, for some reason had to drop out of the show. And so they took the guy who was playing Lewis Morris, they gave him to North Carolina, and then they combined Morris. Uh, Morris is the other guy from New York. Since Morris and Livingston were both from New York, they combined them and let me do both parts. So I got to celebrate and pop a cork, and I got to abstain courteously. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I yeah, I don't know. I, I'm... I'm curious as to why my school didn't like show this although i will say for you seeing this as a kid it's kind of a long movie for a kid yeah well uh, <laughs> it's like it two hours shorter. and 45 minutes i think it was shorter when it first came out i don't know if you listened to any oh, of the really? commentaries oh yeah <laughs> i did not so, know that okay so i just thought i was like wow that's a lot to show kids in a classroom i feel like they'd have to really sit still <laughs> yeah if you listen to any of the commentaries you'll you'll find out that it was about 40 minutes were cut before uh, the premiere uh, against wow. the uh, director's knowledge. He, the director felt that he had locked the picture. He went on vacation to Europe. And when he came back for the premiere, 40 minutes were gone. This was all because of Jack Warner, the producer. Mm. So, so Jack um, Warner, he had... Uh, he was notorious for cutting movies down to make them shorter so they could, you know, the running time shorter so they could get more performances per day so they can get more screenings per day, make more money. Uh, so uh, that was one problem. He also, he was patriotic. He loved the musical, but there were always things that bothered him about it. And mm. he came in the first day for the table read with a, a list of notes that he wanted changed. And, and they basically made the movie, they filmed the play pretty much uh, more than any other movie musical adaptation or stage musical adaptation to the really movie. I, I was curious about that yeah yeah I mean you watch the movie you're pretty you're pretty much seen it's more of a translation than an adaptation it's just huh. okay this is how we did it on stage where we you know we had the proscenium and 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 we were stuck with you know being on on one location now we have cameras we can move the camera around we can go outside but pretty much it's scene for scene it's it's the play and it's the wow. same director as the play. It's the same, uh, well, the screenwriter is the guy who wrote the book for the play. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the cast is the same. That's why a lot of them aren't very famous. They, a lot of them have no other IMDb credits because they were stage wow. actors. And, um, and even the, the costume designer was the same. The, the hairstylist for the wigs was the same. Everything, they just brought the whole company over to uh, Burbank to film Interesting. This. And the reason for that was uh, Jack had uh, produced um, My Fair Lady, and he got mm -hmm. a lot of flack for not going with Julie Andrews, who had created the role of Eliza Doolittle on stage, but she wasn't a movie star yet. So he, he put mm -hmm. Audrey Hepburn in the role because he needed a name. And then the same year, Julie Andrews goes and makes Mary Poppins and, be, and wins the Academy Award. 
And Audrey Hepburn <laughs> doesn't even get nominated because it had come out that she wasn't doing her own singing. She's she was good in the role, but she's not even a singer. So right, we actually so Jack, talked about that because we did an episode on My Fair Lady too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, go ahead. So Jack didn't <laughs> want to make the same mistake twice. So. Uh, he called a press conference to announce that he was making the movie and the director of the play was there just as a courtesy. And when they, the press asked who was going to direct it, or he thought he was there just as a courtesy. And they asked Jack, who's going to direct it and who's going to be in it. And he said, well, everybody who was in it on, on Broadway and the director from the Broadway, the, the stage, they're going to do it. That was how Peter Hunt found out he was going to get to make his, uh, his first movie. He oh, wanted wow. to make a movie, but he didn't think that they were going to let him. So That is crazy. Yeah, you don't so, hear about that a whole lot. Like with a lot of musicals, it seems like they kind of shake things up and do whatever they yeah. think is best. Yeah, there's of, no new songs yeah. added for Academy consideration. There's only one minor song that was uh, uh, cut from the full version. I mean, we'll talk about what was cut later uh, later on. But um, uh, there was, uh, but the the main point of the play and of the movie is to make the founding fathers seem more human and relatable. The, the Prior to this uh, play, you didn't have plays about important historical figures where you showed that they, they'd like to get drunk and they complained about flies and, and uh, they had sex drives and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of jarring in some ways. You're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so they wanted to humanize. That. that was the whole point. And Jack Warner, while he wanted to do this for patriotic reasons, he always had a problem with that. He didn't understand that that was the point, or he maybe he understood. He just didn't like that aspect of it. So a lot oh, of his cuts were any anytime, almost everything with, with the Delaware colony, because they're always bickering among themselves. And he thought, well, that makes them look silly and foolish, and there are we should respect them. They're our founding fathers. So he cut almost everything with the Delaware uh, uh, convention and uh, a lot of other things. But the main cut was cool, cool, considerate men, because that was considered a uh, making fun of the conservatives. And Jack was a conservative and he was friends with um, uh, President Nixon, who was president at the time. And they had performed the play at the White House. Uh, but it took them a year to negotiate it because the, the White House had asked them to cut Cool, Cool, Considerate Men and Mama Look Sharp, which was considered an anti-Vietnam War protest song. And the people who made the play refused to make those cuts. So it took them a year mm. to finally uh, get the White House to agree to let them come and do the whole play. So when the movie comes out and Jack takes a cut over to Nixon, and again, Nixon says, can you cut this song from the movie? And Jack agreed. And so along with the other cuts, he made that big lift, the eight minute song that was the centerpiece of the whole movie. And um, he never told Peter about it. So um, wow. where it really gets interesting, though, is I, I, I mentioned this when I first proposed uh, doing this, that I had some peripheral involvement in getting the restoration uh, made. And that is... Um, Back on uh, back in '90, uh, I think they first announced this uh, for Laserdisc that the the VHS uh, version and all the TV versions and the early Laserdisc were all pan and scan. And oh, okay. Peter Hunt uh, made it a point to use the entire widescreen frame. Back in those days, uh, they would have little lines on the uh, in the camera lens on the the viewfinder to show you where the TV safe area was to make sure that you kept all the important action in an area that would still be visible when they showed it on TV and you cut, cut off the sides. Peter Hunt felt that he needed to keep the action visually alive because he was so, you know, the, the movie itself is straight jacketed by being stuck in this one room with 50 men. And mm -hmm. so he wanted to make sure that he played the whole screen. He, he uh, kept everything on, you know, used the entire frame, uh, including all the sides, so that when you see the pan and scan version, it's terrible. So, oh, no. So uh, back in the day, before the, uh, the World Wide Web and before uh, um, internet browsers like Netscape and stuff, there was CompuServe and AOL. And on CompuServe, they had this forum, the Consumer Electronics Forum, which had a section for Laserdisc fans. 
And one of the moderators of that forum, uh, uh, forum was a guy named Mark Wallage, who was a telecine operator. He was the guy that does all the color timing and color correction when they make a transfer from film to tape or whatever the new medium is. And he would regularly go on and announce that these are the things I'm working on this month so that the, we would know what movies, what favorite movies were coming out and we could save our money and get all excited. And pretty much every title that he mentioned would get somebody would respond, oh, yay, I'm so glad for that. But 1776 got an inordinate amount of response. Everybody was excited about mm-hmm. that. And everyone was, uh, well, Mark in particular was surprised because he'd never seen the movie until he worked on it and he hated it. Uh, oh wow! He was, shocked. he was shocked to see that so many people were enthused about it, were excited about it. And in addition to that excitement for having a letterbox transfer, and that's all that was announced was it's going to be letterbox for the first time. A lot of fans knew that it had been recorded in stereo, but released in mono because the soundtrack album was in stereo. So they knew at least the songs existed in stereo. So they were bugging Mark. Hey, they should, it should be in stereo. Tell them to get it in stereo. Will it be in stereo? We want stereo. So he went back to his boss and said, you're never going to believe everybody wants to see this and they want it in stereo. So they went to um, Columbia Records archives to get to, to get the original stereo masters. And it was all in separate pieces and stuff. And they're listening to the orchestral track for Piddle, Twiddle, and Resolve. And they can hear the vocal bleed through. And they hear that John Adams is singing line, uh, verses that were in the play but were not in the movie, that they didn't know. Hmm. They never knew that there was a longer version of that song recorded because it's not on the soundtrack either. And, oh, wow. Uh, so they start looking for maybe there's more footage as well. Maybe it was shot that way. And they go to the, I guess, the vaults at Columbia Pictures and, and uh, they're, they're looking for footage. The first piece of footage they find is a shot of Thomas Jefferson sitting at the window looking out at some children playing on the lawn, playing soldiers on the lawn, and while John Adams is reading a quote from... Sorry about that. Can you hear my dog? No, it's okay. okay. <laughs> That's okay. John Adams is reading a quote from uh, Tom Paine's Common Sense, and the, this, this was not in the play, but the director just wanted to open that up and show how you know, give a little glimpse of the regular people out there that that, they're, that the decisions of the congressmen were going to affect. Um, and so that was their first indication that there was more to the movie than they knew existed. So then they called Peter Hunt and they said, hey, we found this footage. It's not in the play. It's not in the movie. What's going on? And that's the first time they found out about cool men being deleted because of Nixon. Oh, wow. (laughs) So then they ended up postponing the release for a year while they went out and they found as much footage as they can. So um, what Jack, when Jack was, uh, so Jack Warner was one of the founders of Warner Brothers. But by the time they made 1776, all of the early studio moguls had been pushed out of the business by their boards of directors and the studios Mm -hmm. had become more distributors uh, of independently produced pictures. So there were no studio moguls and, and Jack was one of those. So uh, he independently produced 1776 for Columbia. But when he was uh, the head of um, uh, Warner Brothers, if, if he made cuts to a movie, he, would, he never wanted to be second guessed. So he would order the editor to destroy the negatives of the scenes that he cut. He didn't, I don't think he knew that there would be a home a video medium one day where there would be restored director's cuts, but somehow he knew he didn't want anybody to do that with his movies. So if you get the, he did the same thing with the star is born. Um, mm-hmm. If uh, the Judy Garland version uh, from 1954. And if you get the restored version of that, it's not fully restored. They have again, about 30, 40 minutes of, of scenes that where they only have the audio still existing and they put in uh, production stills. On the video, so that's that's the closest wow. we can get to a finished version of *A Star Is Born*, right now. Um, but that was because he owned the studio, so when he destroyed, uh, he ordered somebody to destroy the negatives. They destroyed the negatives when he was an independent producer, and he ordered somebody to destroy the negatives on *1776*. The editor said, "You know, I think somebody's going to want to see this later," and she took it home with her and hid it in her house for twenty years. Oh my gosh! Well, it's just. It's so, I mean, like, he has a motive for wanting that mm-hmm. not to be released. It's not like he's making a business decision with yeah. that, yeah, you know, and they really can tell crazy. that he's, yeah, that it's just a personal motivation. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. That is really interesting. So I really took for granted how the length of the movie, I didn't realize that at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, uh, and I didn't know any of that. I only had seen the TV version, of course, uh, until the lasers finally came out. And there's a really good commentary on that where they talk all about, all. most of what I told you is in that, mm-hmm. except the part about CompuServe. They didn't mention that specifically. <laughs> <laughs> and for our younger listeners, man, some of you probably don't even know what a laser disc is. <laughs> or CompuServe. But- <laughs> yeah, but this was before VHS, so or not before, but was it before or or around the same time? Technically, as? yes. Uh, uh, Laserdisc was invented before VHS. It came out. It was a very small niche market. Uh, yeah. I actually, by accident, met. Uh, I had a friend in college, uh, and it turned out that his father was on the team at RCA that invented the Laserdisc, and he t- he told me that they did studies uh, that most people the you know they were trying to see if they could sell this to the average uh, family. And there was no such thing as sell through home video yet. And they Mm -hmm. said that most uh, families would just watch a movie four times if they owned it at most, and then they'd never watch it again. So they never were enthused about pushing that as a, as a format. Um, And then sell through video really started, you know, then the Betamax came about and um, uh, then the VHS came after Betamax and, at first, that was all just for people to time shift and record off of TV and watch it later and skip past the commercials. It wasn't a sell-through medium really until uh, Top Gun came out on uh, the original Top Gun uh, came out on VHS at sell-through prices. Uh, but they had to put a Pepsi ad at the beginning in order to keep the price low enough to sell millions of copies. <laughs> wow, the things we take for granted now. Yeah, in fact, you know. I, I guess people sitting at home can think of Betamax as like, you know, when there was HD and Blu-ray. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, it was kind of like that. VHS went out. Uh, but, yeah, like, you know, it was a controversial idea to watch movies at home. Some directors did not like that idea, like Steven yeah. Spielberg, which is why E.T. Yeah. was so delayed for so long in terms yeah. of, like, people a little bit younger than me liking it. Yeah. Um, He's also opposed when to... When he went uh, to DVD, yeah. yeah. Spielberg's also opposed to Netflix movies getting Oscar considerations. So. This is true. But it's funny because, like, you know, we give a lot of flack to directors like, um, what's his name? Uh, Nolan, who, like, is, you know, oh, basically yeah. would just have a meltdown at the idea of you watching one of his films on your iPhone. But it's like... Yeah. You know, the further you get away from when that idea first comes out, the more you realize that things have to change. <laughs> but yeah, Laserdisc, I mean, the the appeal to them was that they were much better quality than VHS, but that price tag and yeah. also the skipping, you know, the same issue you have with like a record player <laughs> with records yeah. you would have with Laserdisc, they skipped easily. So right, it was an analog and some point. of you are young enough to remember, or, or I guess old enough to remember like DVDs kind of had some issues as well with skips. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The the video for the uh, Laserdisc was analog. I mean, it was read by a laser, uh, so it was different than a record, a vinyl record. But the audio, the, initially the audio was analog too, but then they perfected the digital audio. So the Laserdisc was the first medium to come out with digital audio, and that preceded oh, wow. the, uh, the compact disc. Wow, that's surprising. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember I worked at a, a Suncoast store and they had a laser disc section. And like, if you were a oh, real wow, cinephile, that store. <laughs> yeah, if you were a real cinephile, you preferred laser disc even back then because they were better quality, but again, they had their issues. It was better um, quality. It was also the first meeting where they regularly letterboxed the movies because they knew that. Oh, the, really? Uh, yeah. The laser disc medium was intended for the cinephile, for the movie enthusiasts. And they wanted it. The, the, also, what, when I mentioned that they added the digital audio track, once they did that, they realized they, you know, they didn't, if everybody had upgraded their laser disc player and that was easy to do because it wasn't such a large market so that they had the new ones that were capable of playing the digital audio track, then they still had the analog audio track. They didn't need to duplicate it. That's why they came up with the idea of putting an audio commentary because they had this extra audio track that nobody needed. Oh, wow. So they invented huh. the, uh, the audio commentary. I did not know that. I'm learning all kinds of stuff today. Well, <laughs> you have so many good facts. I only have three that I wanted okay. to share about this movie. Um, the first one was that while it's generally accepted that John Hancock was the only one to sign the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, Sherman Edwards and Peter Stone chose to have the congressional delegates sign the document on that date in the musical for dramatic effect. Yes. 
Um, you know, hopefully people at home know that, but you know, I don't know, this could be a, you know, little history lesson for you. Um, the Broadway musical was actually conceived by a history teacher, which isn't Mm -hmm. that surprising. (laughs) Um, also William Daniels, who later appeared on Boy Meets World, uh, played George Feeney, principal of John Adams high school in Philadelphia, PA. He was the star of St. Elsewhere, and I'd never watched that show, but I'm told that there were a lot of little Easter egg references to John Adams in that as well. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen St. Elsewhere. But yeah, neither have I. So. Interesting. Well, <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was watching this um, at home, I was looking at him a lot, you know, and I was like, man. He sure looks and sounds extremely familiar. <laughs> and then I and then I didn't even look it up. I went, that's Feeney. Like, <laughs> I just know it's him. Because he's just played such a lovable, such a positive teacher, you know, on Boy Meets World. Like, as, you know, maybe you watch it a lot or maybe you didn't watch it, you know, depending yeah. on your uh, age when it comes out, you may not have seen it a whole lot. Or maybe you've never seen it before at all if you're listening to this. But um, I was, I can't say I was like a huge fan of the show. I think I was more partial to Wonder Years, which mm-hmm. if you're wondering why I'm saying that, if yeah. you're a little bit younger than me, Wonder Years preceded this. Um, it was, you know, Fred Savage and then his, you know, younger brother is in Boy Meets World. Very different shows, <laughs> different yeah. tones. Um, and I was more partial to, to uh, the Wonder Years because that's what I grew up with. But even as little as I saw Boy Meets World, I always enjoyed William Daniels as the mm-hmm. teacher because I thought it was cool that there was a teacher that, you know, he could be a little bit of a foil sometimes, but he just had such a quick wit. And I think mm-hmm. the actor still does to this day. And he's mm-hmm. just so lovable as kind of a stiff guy, you know? And so I think he really stands out. So as little as I watch that show when I'm watching this movie and as different as he looks by the, by the 80s, I like automatically knew who that was. <laughs> Well, it's interesting so. that you mentioned that you recognize his voice because a lot of people would recognize his voice as uh, Kit, the voice of the car in Knight Rider. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't see Knight Rider as much. That one was a little bit before yeah. my time. So I had a better shot of seeing Boy Meets right. World. But again, Boy Meets World was almost too young for me mm-hmm. uh, by the time it came out. Um, but yeah, I mean, he has a very recognizable voice. And I do think you're right. Knight Rider is probably the bigger thing. But mm-hmm. These days, you know, at least uh, fairly recently, he was in the convention circuit, you know, yeah. as Mr. Feeney going around signing autographs and taking pictures yeah. with people. And a lot of people around my age yeah. or a little younger, like, loved yeah. that show. So, and But I'm sure there's got to be some great Knight Rider fans as well, obviously. Older audiences would also remember he was Dustin Hoffman's father in The Graduate. I don't know. Have you ever done that? Oh, my gosh. Show? How did I forget that? I've done that movie on here. <laughs> Like, I've seen that movie more than once, too. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> I guess I was going with the most recent thing I had seen right. him in. Right. Well, but yeah, I mean, that's as long as we're true. talking about the cast, uh, Ken Howard, who plays Jefferson, also a very well-known character actor. Uh, I think younger audiences might remember him now from uh, 30 Rock. He played the, the guy who owned the cable company that bought NBC. Oh my gosh. I think I'd have to see it again. I loved yeah. that show though. <laughs> I miss that show sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And let's see what else. Who, who else yeah, did you like the, in the cast? Um, I mean, I thought, you know, Howard De Silva plays kind of an adorable version of Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everybody is sort of romanticized, obviously. Like they just, like you said, they're trying to make them seem more human and, easy to uh, connect with. And so he kind of plays this kind of doting kind of goofier version of Benjamin Franklin. But I think you need, because it's such a serious topic. And I mean, really, like you said, it's mainly like in a courtroom, which isn't super exciting for a musical. Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. see why they kind of uh, tweak their personalities a little bit. Oh yeah. It's a musical comedy. It's it's intended to be charming and, but it does get pretty serious toward the end. Yes. uh, Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's different levels of realism. Obviously, did, did you ever see the HBO miniseries John Adams with Paul Giamatti? I didn't. I oh, like that's... that's one of those shows that I kept meaning to watch, and then <laughs> there's just so much content now; it's like so hard to keep up with it's, everything. It's, it's long, but, but I've heard is, it's really good. It is really good, and and of course, that's a whole different level of realism. That's like what we would expect to see in any movie today. Um, whereas 1776 really does look like the play because that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But um, there was uh, uh, Martha Jefferson, 
played by Blythe Danner. Do you recognize her? Mm, I mean, she's beautiful, but I didn't recognize her right off the bat. For um, me, Feeney was, was like the only one I recognized. Okay, well, Blythe Danner was in Meet the Parents and Meet the Fockers, that whole that whole franchise. Oh, like, okay, okay. The mother, yeah. I could see that. And she also played Will's mother on Will and Grace. And oh man, that's li- a throwback too. Yeah, I watch that. In a and while. in real life, <laughs> she is the mother of Gwyneth Paltrow. I did see that in the notes, yes. and that she was like <laughs> pregnant during this. She might have been. Right? I did the math because the uh, the movie wrapped in uh, December, and Gwyneth was born in in the following September. So, so maybe yeah, maybe <laughs> a little bit pregnant. <laughs> yeah, maybe really early on. <laughs> That is an interesting connection. I don't think I realized that Gwyneth Paltrow was like Hollywood royalty like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, most of the others, not too famous. William Duell, who plays McNair, was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, let's see, uh, Howard De Silva. Yeah, I, I didn't recognize him. He was in two different versions of The Great Gatsby, but neither of them were the, the most recent one. So. Wow, and, okay. Yeah. Stephen Nathan, who plays The Courier, he's a writer-producer for Bones and Joan of Arcadia. Uh, the first thing he did right after 1776, he was in a, a very hard-to-find movie called The First Nudie Musical with Cindy Williams <laughs> from Laverne and Shirley, and so Ron Howard actually has a cameo in that. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the guy that played Lewis Morris from New York was uh, in Hogan's Heroes. Oh man, my friend Kara loved Hogan's Heroes. We used to argue about like I preferred Mash and she preferred Hogan's Heroes. Not that they're the same kind of shows, but yeah. they're both military, I guess. <laughs> but she would always like say, "I don't like Mash; it's depressing. I like Hogan's Heroes." I'm like, well, "That's a pretty different show, but okay." <laughs> I should also. But for us, the- I think by the time we saw them on TV, they were kind of, they were like back to back. Like I remember yeah, the lineup yeah. being like that. One is silly, and one is trying to be a little bit like bittersweet, serious. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, as long as we're talking about the cast, uh, I should also mention Blythe Danner's uh, one of the few people who was not in the original Broadway cast. On Broadway, her part was played by Betty Buckley, and it was Betty Buckley's mm-hmm. first role. Uh, I think like it was the week she arrived in New York to become an actress, and she overheard about that audition, and she got there, and it was the first part she booked. And I think she, I think she won wow. the Tony Award. Of course, she went on to Cats and a million other shows. So, and she's still working. Wow. And, uh, well, and this is also not related to the movie, but in my high school version, the guy that played our John Adams, he continues to work as an actor now. Uh, his name is Jeff Sumner. He plays the, he did play the genie in the Aladdin show at Disneyland for, I think it's entire run, like eight years or so. Oh, wow. been to Disneyland you might have seen him he's all also has credits for Desperate Housewives Ugly Betty and shows like that so so a lot of talent in this cast yeah Yeah. and and adjacent (laughs) cast also I don't know if you knew this but uh the there was a revival in maybe 2005 and Brent Spiner from Star Trek played uh Adams oh really oh interesting I did not know that (laughs) I actually just listened to that cast album for the first time. It's actually pretty good. Oh, okay. I'll have and to check me, that out. When I'm used to hearing songs a certain way, and then I hear it a new way with a new cast, I, I sometimes have a problem with that. I didn't at all. I thought they added a lot to it that was pretty clever. Oh, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Well, now I guess since we've kind of gone over the cast a little bit, do you want to talk about some of your favorite scenes or songs from the film? Yeah, I mean, I might as well start with But Mr. Adams because that was the scene that had my solo in it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I like about that is, uh, I I mentioned that I took this musical theater workshop and this this is a great example of a song that moves the story forward. At the beginning of the Mm -hmm. song, you had, you know, all your characters, they don't want to write the, the declaration. And by the end of the song, they've solved that problem, reluctantly forcing uh, uh, Jefferson to be the one to write it. So that's, it's a great song for that purpose and that it moves the story forward. It's not just a song to express how people feel about their, about what was just happening. And mm-hmm. also because it's, like I said before, it's educational. I mean, right. if I had read a textbook in school about who were the five men assigned to the, the, uh, 
the committee for the declaration, I might have memorized their names long enough to pass the test, but I wouldn't remember it 30 years later. But their names are in the song, so it's like this this movie is many is, is, is although it has so many inaccuracies, you still do learn a lot that that yeah. I don't think you would learn otherwise. I mean, songs really make things and entertainment make things fun to remember for me. Right. <laughs> totally agree. And it's one of the few numbers. There's not a lot of choreography in this movie, but that one has a lot of fun choreography where they're passing the quill pen <laughs> back and forth. And, and also, um, you know, Peter Hunt on the commentaries talks a lot about how accurately they, they re- recreated every detail of Independence Hall. I've never been there, but I looked at some of the pictures of it online. Uh, it, especially that, uh, that little foyer with the staircase, it is spot on. It is exactly how you see it in the movie. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, sets would be really, I mean, sets are always important in any movie, but I feel like, you know, in musicals, they're like one of the characters too. And so, yeah, and, important you know, that, until that, I heard him talking about how accurate it was, I looked at it and I said, oh, well, that's just a set. They just put up some walls. No, they researched it very heavily. They found out exactly what kind of paint was used and they got the, they found the manufacturer and they got the same paint that was used wow. in, in the hall to paint the sets. Uh, it's amazing. They, they actually found out some of their research. Uh, Knott's Berry Farm in California had done a replica of Independence Hall before them, and so they borrowed some of their research. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. I've been to Knott's Berry Farm, but I think it's oh, been a long cool. time. I think I've been there. But if I was, it was like like under the age of four. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've been there at all. Um I like the Abigail songs, uh, Yours, 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 Till Then, and uh, Compliments. Um, lovely songs. The, a lot of those lyrics, as well as uh, is anybody there, a lot of the lyrics are almost nearly direct quotes from letters that they actually wrote back and forth to each other. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's something that, you know, and, and, and you could... If you enjoy this entertainment and, and you listen to the cast album and you know like you would a, a regular album and you get to know the songs, you're you're memorizing a piece of history. You know, you're not just mm-hmm. hearing a, a cute pop song. So that's true. Really cool. Yeah. And, and you know, the compliments. So her songs. So she her first song is she's doing part of Piddle Twiddle, but then they go into Till Then, which introduces that Yours, 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 and the Salt Peter Pins, and then we have the whole Yours, Yours, Your Own song. Um, after Miss uh, Martha Jefferson comes there. And then finally in compliments, we get the third version of that where it's a big triumphant, you know, she's sending the, the saltpeter to him. It's great. I love the, the big swell. That's, that's one of the few moments that that movie has that big swelling music crescendo kind of a thing. So mm-hmm. that's always fun for me. And uh, is anybody there is, is another one. Like I said, John Adams really did, predict that we would be celebrating independence day every year with fireworks and parades uh wow again most of those lyrics are almost direct quotes from his letters interesting i don't think i realized watching i mean you know i always assume <laughs> that musicals are not very historically accurate but i didn't realize how much of it was pulled from direct quotes so that's really cool i know it's funny because uh the guy who i told you he did the transfer and he said he didn't like the movie i remember saying in the in the forum i said but it's so accurate and he goes oh really were they singing and dancing in congress and I, but no but this was true and this was true <laughs> and a lot of people don't yeah i think you- like you're saying it's not it doesn't hurt to make the facts accessible to a wider audience so that they can yeah. appreciate them easier like that's there's no sin in that you know <laughs> the one thing that john adams got wrong was he thought that we would be celebrating independence day on the july 2nd because that is the day oh. that they had the vote and you're right when you said before the signing didn't take place on july 4th hancock's signature may have actually been on uh, july 5th we don't know for sure um the end of the movie the last shot of the movie is inspired by a famous painting by john trumbull which is on the back of the two dollar bill um and it's 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 called the Declaration of Independence. Most people mistakenly believe that it's the signing, but there never was a time when all 56 signers were in the same room at the same time. There was a lot of coming and going in Congress. And mm, uh, that, that painting that painting is a scene that also didn't really happen with everybody there, but it was a painting of the delivery of the Declaration and the reading of it from the printer. 
So. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, that's a lot of people to gather from all over the States yeah. at a time when transportation was not but, convenient. <laughs> but everybody imagines that that's how it was signed. And so that's how they, they ended the movie. And it is a great ending. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a movie and a musical. So they have to make <laughs> it like visually satisfying, even if it's not exactly how it happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing I found in, in doing additional research for, for this uh, was that the uh, vote was never contingent on any changes to the declaration. They voted oh, on the proposal really? on, uh, yeah, on July 2nd, and then they started the debate on what to change and omit and, and, and so forth. And okay. then they sent it to the printer. That's why it may not have gotten back from the printer until the 5th. I see. But then in the movie, they want to make it seem more dramatic. So. Yeah, it's way more It's yeah. way more dramatic. You know, I, I think I mentioned uh, last week to you that, uh, you know, I need a little extra time to, to rewatch the movie, but maybe I don't really need it because I've seen it so many times. Well, when I watch <laughs> it again, I, I was surprised. I have seen it so many times. I don't watch it every 4th of July anymore because I've seen it so many times. But when I rewatched it this time, I did find myself getting hooked up in it again, you know, like it, it was, it was exciting. I mean, I know, obviously I know how it's going to end, but we all do before we go in there. You know, sure. Even if sure. we haven't seen it. So it, the, 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 the machinations of, of the, uh, of how the voting changes, you know, the tally board didn't exist in, in the real independence hall. That was something that Peter Stone, the writer invented so that the audience mm. in, in the theater at any point could keep track of, where we were, uh, how close yeah. we were to independence. And we don't see it as much in the movie version as you could on stage, because on stage you can look at it at any point. And here we only get to see it when the director shows it to us. But um, still, what I noticed is, you know, the, the, the dark night of the soul when the, when, uh, the um, uh, after Rutledge's song, the molasses drum and the whole South walks out, at that moment, it's seven to five with one abstention. And so they don't even have a majority anymore or a tie anymore, let alone unanimity. And this is, there's like a half hour left in the movie. How are they ever going to get that declaration signed? And that was the big problem that Peter Stone had to solve was everyone goes to the play or the movie knowing that they're going to sign the declaration on July 4th. How do we make them believe it's not going to happen? So you get there, it's, it's a half hour left and, and there's no chance that they're going to win. The first thing that happens is uh, Marilyn comes back from New Jersey. He goes into the yay column for the first time. So now it's back mm. to uh, six, six. And then that night, uh, uh, Georgia Lyman Hall comes in and he's, oh, I've been thinking about it. And this guy from British parliament said this one thing and I agree with it. So I've, I'm going to go ahead into the, so George is in the A column for the first time. And that leaves us with the big four. Uh, we've got um, Delaware, which we've been, which has been set up throughout the whole play uh, and the movie again, uh, where there's this three-way uh, battle. The two of them are for it, but one of them is sick and he's been sent away. They have to go get him back. So that gets resolved. Then we have the two Carolinas, and we know what the big issue is there. And once that's yeah. resolved, North Carolina is in. Then we get the, the brilliant uh, Pennsylvania thing, completely fabricated, almost completely fabricated So <laughs> for the play. But it's, <laughs> it's still brilliant. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, Wilson, they call him a judge. He, in real life, he wasn't a judge at that time. He later became a judge oh. and was one of the first Supreme Court justices. But that wasn't the case in 1776. Uh, he wasn't, he was always in favor of, uh, he, he was, um, he mentored under Dickinson. So he was kind of the sycophant of, of, uh, of Dickinson and would do what he said, but he was very pro-independence and hmm. uh, he wouldn't officially vote that way until he could make sure that uh, that's what his constituents wanted. Uh, there was yeah. another guy in Pennsylvania who was the swing vote, who did change his vote at the last second, but it wasn't Wilson. But one thing I learned um, when I was in high school and they combined those two parts was how tight the script was. It, it's, it's known for having the longest book scene in Broadway history in, in a musical. So what I mean by a book scene is uh, in, in a musical, you have your, your music and lyrics and your songs, and then everything else that's written is the script, but they call it a book. So that would be not only the dialogue, but also the characters and the scenes and the scene structure and, and, and the whole concept is, is the book writer. So, but all your scenes that don't have music in it, it's a book scene. 
And that oh, scene okay. three in the play, it's it's a 30-minute scene without a song. And they told them before oh. they opened it, no one will sit through that. But they needed to set everything up. So when mm-hmm. we combined the two New York parts, we had a dilemma. Because Livingston is one of the five men who was on the committee to draft the declaration and his name is in the song. So I had to be Livingston, but Livingston wasn't one of the signers. He ended up leaving Congress before it was finished. He sent his cousin, Philip Livingston to sign it, but that would have probably been confusing to combine the two of them. So they, they, they had, I think they just decided we're going to break New York into two parts. And then you see that there's at least one character for every colony but the colonies that need more have more. Pennsylvania has three because they need it for that tiebreaker vote. Delaware yeah. has three. They need it for the tiebreaker vote. And that's when I realized how tight the writing is. It seems like it's, you know, unwieldy. It's, it's, it, there's so much dialogue, so many votes and, and, and trying to keep track of it. But as much as they tried to cut down on that long book scene, they couldn't. Everything needed to be there. It's all setting it up, setting up, uh, throughout the play, you're, they're setting up how much Wilson is in Dickinson's shadow and and nobody listens to him. They're setting up how um, Delaware is is fighting amongst themselves. And it all pays off in the end. It's just so mm-hmm. tightly written. Yeah, wow, I didn't realize that, all those combining of characters and stuff. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because in in reality, there's 56 signers. Each colony had multiple people there in Congress, and some of them at different times. But um, they they weren't going to put 56 people on the stage. Some of them, for the the movie version, they did add a lot more in the background. I don't know if it's a full 56, but there are additional delegates from each colony in the background. Um, Yeah. I just... I just noticed there's one where um, uh, where Bartlett, I think, uh, when they're asking for corrections and uh, the the guy who makes the first uh, 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 correction, he says, in in your document, you said this, this and this. And you see he's getting the his notes from his colleague. You know, that's Mm -hmm. that's one of the few cases where you see one of these background people actually do something. But they didn't (laughs) give him names. They didn't give him lines or anything, but they just peopled it out. So it looks more realistic. Yeah. That makes sense. You want it to seem like a full room. Mm-hmm. How about you? What what were some of your favorite scenes? I think I liked, you know, the, the scenes where um, there's like that song with um, Benjamin, John Adams and the egg. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's well, actually one. I was thinking of the one with uh, Martha oh. Jefferson. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, I thought that was that was a nice scene and like whimsical and like fun. Yeah, again, one of the few the the choreographies is in uh, but Mr. Adams he plays the violin and cool cool man. The rest of it, they're you know the the mama looks sharp. The guy is just sitting there on the middle in the middle of the stage. Uh, the egg is just the three founding fathers sitting mm-hmm. and singing to the camera basically. Yeah, that was a fun song though. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun song and and it's because it's a fun song that 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 can survive such a static shot. I mean, it's not totally static. Yeah. The camera's circling them a little bit, but you couldn't do that if the song wasn't good enough to carry that scene. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, he plays the violin and livens it up. We get some, some female perspective in there. You know, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of sexual innuendo in that song. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Here's another fact that I, I learned from the play is that uh, uh, Martha Jefferson died young. There's the last verse of the oh. song is when heaven calls to me, sing me no sad elegy. That's there because she did die very young, very shortly after that. And she uh, was dead before Jefferson was president. So oh, the history wow. books had always listed Martha Jefferson as first lady, but they're referring to their daughter, Martha Jefferson, who took on the duties of the first lady. Jefferson never remarried. Oh, wow because he was with Sally Hemings and they they probably couldn't legally get married. Right. (laughs) Which by the way, brings us to the slavery issue. I think that, that was another thing that uh, Peter Hunt says uh, that, you know, when they did the play, they heard from a lot of people who said that until they saw that play, they didn't realize that the slavery issue was being debated that early. And that's, yeah, I feel like when you look in the history books, like, I mean, part of that too is because Europe, had such a 
different opinion of slavery than we did here mm-hmm. in the U.S. You know, it was like way past not cool and was like a, a big issue and was something that, you know, needed to be obviously for obvious reasons uh, discussed and talked about and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately didn't, uh, you know, get overturned here. But yeah, it makes sense that it would have been debated even back then. Yeah, I mean, and they're they're not making excuses. They are saying, look, you know, we we might not have really been able to to get the nation started at all if we you know tried to fix everything at the start. And uh, you know, it's sad, but it's it's uh, that's the way it happened. But at the same time, you know, the musical isn't really letting them off the hook. That song "Molasses Geronim, is really really hitting the uh, the anti-slavery people hard, the Northerners hard. It's saying. You're, you're, you know, you're hypocrites. You're, you're part of this too. You're profiting from it. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the one guy gets up in the middle of the song and says, for the love of God, Mr. Rutledge, please. It's because, you know, he's hammering them so bad saying how, how, how participatory they are in the evil. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind he's, of unavoidable part yeah, of our Yeah, He gets up history. on the desk and he's, he's imitating a slave uh, auctioneer, you know, Mm-hmm. The, those are totally the northern people it's you know it's, uh, it's the way it was yeah yeah and, and it's good know, that they touched on it and didn't like like I, I mean you know hearing that there's 40 extra minutes and there are some issues <laughs> that don't paint everybody in the perfect light like or every state in the perfect light it's like it's kind of crazy to want to take that stuff out you know it's like yeah. In today's world, I feel like you would be criticized for removing some of that stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and, I, and even in well, in the Star Is Born, I guess that had been released as a roadshow in its original length. So people, mm-hmm. historians, it, it wasn't a surprise to know that that had been cut. Everybody knew that it was cut. The seventeen seventy six, it was done before the premiere. So yeah, the public, but at large, didn't really know that at all. That there yeah, was a that makes version. sense. The people doing the restoration didn't know it, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. So all, they they <laughs> just announced that they were putting out a letterbox uh, transfer that would be in mono. They you know they thought yeah. people would be excited that it was letterbox, and they were, but they didn't even think to to look for stereo, let alone forty missing minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I should put so there are five different versions now. Um, three of them are very similar, though. Uh, and I, I have, you know, we haven't mentioned that, uh, just last month, actually May 31st, they released the 50th anniversary version on 4k ultra HD Blu-ray. Um, wow. And that can, yeah, I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. And so I just got it and I haven't, you know, watched every little bit of it all. It, it contains all five versions. I think, no, it contains four of the five versions. So there's the original theatrical cut. It's on the D, on the on this nude Blu-ray for the first time ever. It's the letterbox one that this is what they would have released on Laserdisc if it hadn't been for our forum uh, on, mm. on CompuServe. Uh, so that's being released for the first time. It's so it's the theatrical cut. You can see the cuts. The Laserdisc cut is also restored here. And it's interesting. it's exactly like it was on the Laserdisc. So what the other thing I love about the Laserdisc cut is that it's not a director's cut. I mean, they, they told the director, they asked the director, hey, what's going on? And he, he shared their notes and stuff, his notes with them. But he didn't really see it until he sat down to record the commentary. And what mm. they ended up doing is they put in every piece of footage they could find, which included things that he actually had intended to cut. Oh, wow. So that he had cut before he went away on vacation. So they weren't all Jack Warner cuts. So... The laserdisc cut isn't really a director's cut. It's more of, a, of an editor's cut. Well, not even, it's a restorer's cut. It's a first draft of the, you know, a, a, a rough version of the director's cut. And mm-hmm. what they did was, I guess, because it had been de- delayed so long, or maybe the, the some of the footage was in such bad shape that they didn't do the color correction on the restored footage, but they kept the, all the stuff that Mark had done on the theatrical cut. So whenever mm-hmm. there's a scene where there was a cut by Jack Warner, it would com- there's a complete color shift and anyone could tell suddenly it's got scratches on it in, in a couple of places. It's in, it's in black and white because all they could find at that time was a black and white work print. Wow. Um, and so it's fascinating because as you're watching it, you could see what Jack Warner must have been thinking. Why did he cut this? Why did he cut that? And so they, they rest- they've retained that on this um, 
on an extra disc on this new Blu-ray package. You can see mm. how it looked on Laserdisc now. And yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, then there's the DVD cut, which is the first one that's called the director's cut, where he took out the things that were added back that he didn't want in in the first place. So that includes, um, there was a reprise of the Lees of Old Virginia, um, which mm-hmm. was originally in the play because it's such a show-stopping number that the audience is applauding and they, they, they want a little bit more of it. So he gives them an extra little coda of it. Uh, and that mm-hmm. he said that was really more of a stage convention and we didn't really need it in the movie, even though they shot it. Uh, the original, the, the two verses of Piddle Twiddle that were what they first heard uh, on the stereo orchestra tracks uh, that made them realize that there was a, a longer version of that. He cut those back out. So, so oh, you wow. still have the short version of Piddle Twiddle. And uh, some of the other big things were there was the, the Lazarus version has an overture, uh, intermission music and exit music. And so much of the 40 minutes was that. So those are not in the director's cut. Um, The first Blu-ray version has, I think only, as far as I know, it only has one line that's different. And that was, um, so so how did you watch this? Did you watch it streaming or or what? Yeah, I watched it streaming. I rented it in iTunes. Okay, Okay, so there was a line um, where Hopkins has been out uh, in the outhouse and he missed his vote, and he comes back and he says, <laughs> you'd think the Congress could get its own pisser. That's what he says now, yeah. and that's what he said in the play. But in the theatrical version and in the Laserdisc version and in the first uh, DVD version... Director's cut, yeah. The, yeah, the DVD director's cut, he's, uh, the line is, you'd think Congress would get its own privy. Oh, I don't think, yeah, tried, I don't think they did that for ratings. <laughs> they they might have done it for a rating, because the original short version was rated G, and the Laserdisc version got a PG. Interesting. So I guess just be, mentioning the bathroom at all. Well, like, they didn't put the crude way. They didn't put the pisser line in the Laserdisc, so that wasn't it. But I mean, the, all yeah. the sexual innuendo with Jefferson, you know, when you know, you're not—they're not, not going to do that in the middle of the day. That might have been enough, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, then there's a—I uh, haven't watched it yet, but there's also an extended director's cut that's only a few minutes, so I'm not sure what's different about that. And then. Um, is that five? Yeah, I think I've mentioned all five. So there's a lot of different cuts. And wow. Then, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I had no idea there were so many different cuts, <laughs> although I've only seen this movie one time. So <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> were there any other songs that we haven't talked about yet that we wanted to run through? Uh, let's see. Plays of Hilden. Let's see. The Mama Look Sharp is a great song. Uh, that was our the song I had to audition with. Um, oh, nice! Yeah, <laughs> so I remember that pretty well. <laughs> um, and like I said, it was you know when it first came out, it was you know the Vietnam War and the draft was going on. It was very obvious that that was a war protest song. By the time the movie came out, uh, Nixon didn't care about that anymore because uh, he had already withdrawn the troops. So, oh, interesting. So that, that was always allowed to stay in. But, you know, that was, you know, the main thing that uh, Peter Hunt thought was so important was that those two songs were the, the core of the movie, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the conservative standpoint of view, then how's it affecting people out in the field? People are actually dying. For me, you know, I've never loved Cool, Cool, Considerate Men all that much. I mean, I don't want mm-hmm. it to be cut, and I certainly don't want it to be cut because the president said so. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't love the song. It's it's not as uh, hummable to me. But and and also mm-hmm. it's anachronistic. They didn't use left and right uh, uh, politics uh, at the time in 1776. That was coined during the French Revolution in 1789. But it didn't make it to America until the 1940s. And it wasn't until the 1960s where it really solidified in its current connotation when we say left and right. And gotcha. knowing that, yeah, knowing that, I think Nixon was absolutely right. It was clearly making fun of them. At, at that time, anyone would have known because it was the new modern way to to make fun of the opposite side. And sure. they're say they're they're goose stepping like Nazis, saying to the right, ever to the right. So it's clear that that Nixon would not have liked that. But right, uh, right. But like I said, with um, with molasses to rum, they're giving it to the the other side just as as hard. 
you know, they're mm-hmm. saying, you know, you guys suck too. Yeah. 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 So at least they kind of did both sides a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's balanced. I knew I would have a lot to say. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm glad you're here so you can kind of, you know, I mean, well, it's your episode, but also because, so you can kind of talk on all that since I've only seen it one time. <laughs> Yeah, if you ever get a chance to see it uh, live, it's it's fun. It's going to be pretty much the same. You should go. Yeah, yeah. They should revive it, especially after, you know, Hamilton being so successful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing I wanted to say. I did find um, an interview from 2016 that Playbell did, uh, you know, the the program that they give you when you go to see a show, uh, Playbell. They they got uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and William Daniels, who who plays Adams, they did a joint interview with them. And Miranda is saying, oh, interesting. yeah, he's talking all about how 1776 was very influential on Hamilton. He loved, mm. he says, I, you know, I loved it when the play opens with your hero, your protagonist being yelled at by the entire company to sit down and shut up. And, you know, he knew that, <laughs> you know, Hamilton was also going to be an unlikable protagonist as well. So, yeah, he was like, well, great. I can do that, too. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. 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 Does it still, I, I mean, does this play still tour at all? Constantly. Or? Constantly. I okay. mean, you know, because it's educational, they, they, it's it, a lot of high schools do it. A lot of community mm-hmm. theaters do it. Uh, oh, so, okay. But as far as the revival, like I said, there was a recent revival with um, Brent Spiner um, and, and there was, there's always touring companies of it. There was a, uh, they were planning to do a version with an all-female cast, and that got postponed because of the uh, pandemic. So I don't know where oh, they're okay. at with that. That would that, be interesting. Yeah, that's. I think that's still in the works, and that that could be very oh, interesting. Cool. I, you know. Well, I guess that brings me to my last couple of questions then for you. Um, you've kind of talked about why you enjoy this so much, why you re- you revisit it specifically on July mm-hmm. 4th, not every year, but you have yeah. several times. But if you could summarize, why why do you enjoy this this version of, of this story so much? Why do you like this musical so much? Uh, yeah, pretty much like I said, it's, it is the musical that I was in that, you know, I sat through <laughs> weeks of rehearsals, so I got to memorize it like everybody else in the cast. And, uh, so it's a, a huge nostalgia factor and because of the, it's entertaining and it's, it's educational and it's fun and, mm-hmm. and I am an American, so it's patriotic. Uh, and it's the easiest question to, uh, movie to answer this question for is because every year at the 4th of July, there's not many other <laughs> movies that are about the 4th of July, except maybe that Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, that's about the Revolutionary War. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. really think about other movies that come close. I know. I think like a funny tongue-in-cheek thing people do every year is watch Independence Day. But Independence Day, yeah. Not, about. not really the same. <laughs> <laughs> not really the same, yeah. I, I but mean, that's a good point. There aren't a ton of Fourth of July movies, so this could National be one Treasure that you add to your is another rotation. one. National oh, Treasure, yeah, yeah, that's Page, because it's about the Declaration, and they all go, also go into a recreation of the set of uh, Independence mm-hmm. Hall. So that's interesting. Yeah, and it looks the same true. as it does in this movie. Yeah, yeah, and now we know it's pretty accurate or fairly yeah. accurate. Um, how would you pitch this to someone that hasn't seen it before? Like, I'm again, I'm surprised I didn't, but maybe it's because <laughs> it came out in the seventies. I mean, I don't know why yeah, they never it, showed it at my school. It is weird. I think because of the cuts and also because, uh, it came out at a time when musicals were, you know, out going out of fashion that a lot of people oh, that's true. don't yeah. know about it because it didn't do well at the box office. Uh, mm. you know, in, in fact, you know, I, I was looking up it, in the sixties, there were, uh, 10 musicals that were nominated for best picture and four of them won. And in 1972, the year this came out, uh, cabaret was nominated for best picture, but it was the last musical nominated for best picture until Moulin Rouge 29 years later. Whoa. So, yeah. Musicals kind of were... Go ahead. Not to hate on Moulin Rouge, but I'm kind of surprised that was nominated. Yeah, and then shortly after that, Chicago wins the Best Picture. So yeah, but, yeah, that but, one. So I, I that's a twenty-nine year span where musicals just weren't popular. They they didn't disappear completely. Grease was the highest-grossing movie musical of all time that came out in seventy-eight. Yeah. So, but but yeah, by and large, musicals had had lost their luster, and so I think that's a, one of the reasons that people didn't see it. Um, that's so, true. It's it's common for people to say stuff like, "I don't watch musicals. I don't like musicals." Like completely yeah. discounting the entire genre in a way that they don't do with a lot of other genres. Mm-hmm. 
But I, as far as how I would pitch it, yeah, it's it's the you know kind of how you described it at the beginning of the episode. It is the story of how uh, our founding fathers came up with the Declaration of Independence, but it's done in a fun, lighthearted, entertaining musical theater way. Um, yeah, that's that's educational. Yeah. Yeah, so I highly recommend you guys check it out. I'm glad that I did. And, you know, thank you again, Danny, for coming on and for picking another movie that, you know, this time a full musical, but always yeah. a, a movie that has a musical base. So I'll have to have you back soon. Thank you. Next so time much. I will have to pick something that has no connection to musicals. <laughs> that will be your challenge. <laughs>